How do we reach the secular mind? That's a challenge for today, isn't it? How do we reach people who have no knowledge of the one true God? We've got so many isms. We've got narcissism, agnosticism, atheism. There's one thing in common with all of them, and that is that they worship self. How do we turn people who worship self into people who worship God? I think our first goal is to show them how untenable that way of living really is. You can't live a self-indulged life and ever hope to find joy. Joy is only found when we have a right relationship with our Creator and right relationship with other people. That is what sustains joy. The second thing we need to do is to show them that God has left His fingerprint. God has left His fingerprint on this world. Our universe is so complex. This is my Father's world, and He has left His imprint on everything. Not only has God left His imprint in creation, God has left His imprint on the human heart. Every one of us has a divine knowledge of the Creator through our conscience. We all know right from wrong. We all know what values are. We all enjoy fellowship with people. We all have feelings. That doesn't come from pre-mortal soup. It comes from a Creator. God has left His fingerprint indelibly through history. You look at the history of the nation of Israel. God has left His imprint in this nation. He strategically placed Israel between two of the greatest empires, between Egypt and between Mesopotamia, the King's Highway, so that everyone had to travel through Israel and they came in contact with the God of Abraham. God gave them a covenant on Mount Sinai so that their laws and their statutes might be a testimony to a nation that has such wise and understanding and compassionate and loving law nation of Israel. Yes, God has left His fingerprint in history. We need to show people that God has left His fingerprint, not only His fingerprint, but His person in the incarnation, Jesus Christ. If we want to see God, all we have to do is open the page and see Jesus. God condescended and became human flesh so that we might know Him. John 1.14, the Word, Jesus, became flesh. And He dwelt and He lived among us and we beheld His glory, the only glory of the begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. That's our God. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father who's in the bosom of the, the Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, He has exegeted the Father. He has declared Him. He has brought out all the nuances of every attribute of God, and we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to reach our lost secular friends by showing them their life is untenable without Christ, and that God indeed has left His fingerprint on this universe. 
in our hearts, through history, in the person of Jesus. Last time I spoke from this passage, I gave you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and that was, evangelism is one beggar going back and finding some other beggars and saying, look, I have found a loaf of bread, and taking them back there. Well, I read one this week that wasn't quite so palatable to me. Charles Spurgeon also said this about evangelism, and this one really cut me, and I had to really, really ponder it a while. He said, either you're a missionary, drama, (laughs) I forgot the rest of it, (laughs) or you're an imposter. Thank you, Tracy. You can tell I read the sermon to her. (laughs) Either you're a missionary or you're an imposter. And I said, ouch, Charles, that one hurt. Now, how do you become that missionary? I mean, Paul's a missionary here, and he's in the city of Athens. Well, there's hope for all of us. Jesus took a bunch of fishermen, and he said, come and follow me, and I will. Notice that's future tense. There's hope for all of us. I will make you, and then the compliment, to become fishers of men. It's a long, slow process, and God's working on all of us to become better equipped evangelists. And this morning's message is to do that, is to equip us. So I find four principles, the eternal principles that will help us to be better evangelists. So if you're a note taker, you can write these down. I started with all with C so we could remember them. I don't usually alliterate my sermons, but this one I did. Common ground. The place to start reaching the secular world is common ground. The second C is conscience. I'm sorry, that's not the second C. The third C, I'm trying to do this without notes because if I got followed six pages of notes this morning, we'd be here for two hours. <laughs> You're saying amen. Don't use your notes, Patrick. The second C, creation. We find common ground. We move to creation. Then we go to conscience. And then we call to Christ. So let's start with common ground. Common ground. How do we find common ground with people? It is a slow, hard work of befriending and building relationships. There is no shortcut. You've got to have people into your home. You've got to be in their home. You've got to find out what their hobbies are, what their interests are. What is it that makes them tick? What is it that they are passionate about? That's what you've got to do. And it doesn't happen by accident. Paul, when he was waiting in Athens, says that he saw what was going on and it provoked his spirit. There was something going on in Paul's heart. We see this word to perceive two more times in this passage. It's used three times altogether, but it's used in verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive. The word perceive means to take note of, to meditate on, and then to think about what it means intellectually, not just to see it. He perceived it. He saw it in his eyes, mind, and heart. And then it says as he was passing through, he was considering. It's the exact same Greek word, but that word considering has got a little preposition in front of it, which means again and again and again and again, ana. Paul was considering it, meditating on it, thinking on it. How can I reach this generation of Athens? 
What do I need to do? And then the aha moment hit him when he walked by. He said, ah, this is my in route. This is my common, this inscription to the unknown God. That's my avenue. That's my plan of attack. Last week, I was able to witness to a young man because I knew what was interested to him. He was going on a mission to Portugal, not Portugal, Brazil, and they speak Portuguese. And he sent me his letter, and I asked, I said, yes, send me your letters when you go. Not because I'm interested in exactly his mission work in this country, but I'm interested in him as a person, in his soul, in his heart. And he had a little quote about faith, and that was important to him, and his whole letter went on about faith. But it was very, very confusing in his letter because faith was all these works that you had to do. And so I said, I noticed in your letter as I was considering it, and you're very interested in faith. Let me give you another quote about faith. Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This one thing I want to learn from you, how did you receive the Spirit? By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now perfected or made perfect? By human effort. Oh, foolish Galatians. So I just sent that to him. I said, meditate on that one. That's a good quote about faith. But I took what was interesting to him and he was passionate about, and I turned that toward an evangelistic opportunity. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's finding out what they're interested in, and he's turning it into an evangelistic opportunity. He says, I saw your unknown God inscription. Let me tell you about him. Let me give you the background of this inscription. The city of Athens, hundreds of years before the Apostle Paul ever got there, was under this bubonic plague. It was horrific. People dying by the thousands. They've got 30,000 gods. Maybe we should add 30,001, 30,002. We've got to keep finding new gods because what other these gods are not doing anything. And if they kept building more altars and building more shrines, and the gods kept doing nothing about this plague. So finally, in their desperation, they wrote a letter to a guy named Epimenides. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how I'm pronouncing it today. Anyway, this Epimenides was supposed to be this great philosopher. So he comes to the city of Athens. He looks at all their altars, and he comes up with two premises. He says, one, all of these gods are inferior And there's a God that you have forgotten about. And it's not a God of statues and stones and rock and man's art and and carvings. It must be a God who supersedes all gods. And this God, he must be all-powerful. He's going to stop this plague. But this God must be all-merciful to overlook your ignorance. Let's let some sheep go. And wherever the sheep lay down, you go and you build an altar on that spot and you sacrifice that sheep to this unknown, all-powerful, mysterious God who exists outside of time, space, and matter. Sounds like Epimenides was having a reformation, a revival in the city of Athens. They did it, and all Greek writers tell us that the plague immediately stopped. Unfortunately, that Reformation didn't last long, 
and they walked right back into their multiple gods and building idols all over the place. And when Paul saw that, Paul was aware of that story. He was aware of the history. And he says, I want to take you back about 300 years when you guys knew better. Let me tell you all about that God. Common ground. Secondly, finding common ground means that we point our unbelieving friends and our family members, our co-workers, to Christ through their interests. We need to be good listeners. We need to be good observers before we become speakers. I learned that in Ireland pretty quickly. I won't go into any stories about that, though. Creation. Paul starts right there at creation after he found common ground. Turn in your Bible to verse 24. He says, God who made the world and everything in it. There's only three possibilities for our creation. There's only three possibilities for our existence. And this is where I want you to take a few notes if you want to. One, God created it from nothing. That's one possibility. And your atheistic friend may say, whoa, I can't buy that. That's too mysterious. That's too much sounding like a miracle. Well, let's wait till we get to option number two. Option number two is everything in the universe popped out of nothing from nowhere. That's a possibility. And if God didn't create it, where did it come from? It came from nowhere from nobody. Okay, we've got a third option. The universe has always existed. Now let's examine two and three before we go to God created everything. Number two, it popped nothing. You know, I've been to magic shows before, and they're pretty impressive, aren't they? Just watch the magician, and he sticks something out of his sleeve, and takes a handkerchief and waves it around and pulls out a dollar bill or whatever it is, or he takes his hat and taps it and pulls a rabbit out. That's kind of what option number two sounds like. It sounds like magic. Everything popped out of nothing and nowhere. You know, magic has got at least got a hat to work with, and it's got a magician to work with. That option's got nothing. It's, it's illogical. And not only is it illogical, it is unscientific. We have never observed anything creating itself from nothing. It's unscientific. It's illogical. So let's go to number three, that the universe has always existed. Is that a possibility? Has the universe always existed? This defies logic, and it defies science also. The law of biogenesis is pretty simple. All life begins from life. Now, I'm dumbing it down because that's the only way I can understand it. But it really goes back to the old adage, what came first? The chicken or the egg? Well, the chicken came first. Had to come first. Well, where did it come from? Well, it came from an egg. Well, where did the egg come You've got an infinite regress. You can't have an infinite regress. It's illogical. The law of biogenesis. The second law of thermodynamics says that we are constantly use, losing usable energy. You know, I used to have a a pocket watch I used to stick right here. My grandfather gave it to me. and This was back before batteries, and you'd wind it up. And it was losing usable energy all the time. This is a poor illustration, but it gets my point across. That watch wasn't running forever. It had a point in time when it started to run, and I knew when it was going to run out. That's the law of entropy. 
The law of entropy also says that things move toward constant randomness. If this universe, and by the way, it's losing usable energy, our universe is. If it's infinite, then sometime in the infinite past, I don't know when that would have ever been, we would have ran out of energy. The universe would have ceased to exist sometime in the infinite back. And not only would it cease to exist, it would have been infinitely random. So number three is unscientific. It's illogical. Number two is illogical, unscientific. That leaves us with option number one, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's where we need to start with our secular friends. You can't get around it. Thomas Aquinas was a great theologian, and he came up with three little logical steps. He said, everything that begins has a cause. You think about that. It does, doesn't it? You know, I got, I got a red cheek handprint on my face because I wasn't very nice to my wife. No, I, <laughs> that, that was the effect. She's the cause. No. <laughs> I shouldn't have used that. As a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get one after the sermon this morning. <laughs> okay, everything that begins has a cause. Second premise, Thomas Aquinas says, is the universe had a beginning. The conclusion, therefore, it had a cause. Another modern-day theologian, his name is William Lane Craig, one smart man. And William Lane Craig said that whatever caused this universe has to be timeless, spaceless, uncaused, immaterial, and all-powerful. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the biblical God of creation? Timeless. Psalm 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. What about spaceless? Is our God spaceless? When King Solomon built his temple, this is what he said, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold the heavens, and the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you, much less this little house that I have built. God is timeless. God is spaceless. Is God immaterial? Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. God is spaceless. God is timeless. God is immaterial. Is God uncaused? Isaiah 43, 11, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you might know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me, no God existed. He's uncaused. And by the way, no God will be after me. Is God all-powerful? Again, let's let Isaiah answer that question. Isaiah says in 40, 10, 28, Thou hast, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, the everlasting God, the God who created the ends of the earth, he faints not. The Apostle Paul said this in Romans 1.21, The invisible things from him, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, even understanding his eternal power and Godhead, so that men are without excuse. Yes, we need to start with creation. 
a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, all-powerful God. And when Paul meditated on this, he penned this little verse to Timothy, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17. What can we infer from God's creation? The first thing that we can infer from God's creation, verse 24, is the word since. Since God created everything, He doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. So what do we infer from that? That God made everything and He doesn't dwell in man-made temples? Man-made religion is not the way to find God. You don't find God through man-made religion, through rituals, through sacraments, through ceremonies. God is not there. In fact, those things push us further away from the Creator. The woman at the well met Jesus and she said, Our fathers worship on this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is now and is coming when neither in Jerusalem nor in the mountains will they worship God the Father. For God is spirit and He is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the first thing we can conclude is since He's Creator, man-made religion is not the way to find God. Second thing that we can conclude from this, nor is he worshipped with things man, with man's hands. Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. We don't find God through human works. We don't come to God through human works or through human effort. Isaiah 66, 1 says this, Thus says God, the Lord who made heaven, it is my throne, earth is my footstool, what house will you build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hands have made, and all these things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man I will look. Who is it that God will look to? Not through human worshiping, but to the man who is of a poor and contrite spirit. To this one I will look. The second inference that we can draw. A third inference that we can draw from God being the creator of everything is that God has put in every human heart an internal GPS that's pulling us to God. And we can use this to our advantage. Verse 25. The end of verse 25, we see the word since again. Since He gave breath to all and to all things, He made from one blood every nation to dwell on the face of the earth, what else has God done? Put this GPS in us. He's determined our pre-appointed times and our boundaries of their dwellings. And what is the result? Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord. God has put this eternal, internal GPS. How did he do that? Look at the verse. It says, God gives to all life and breath. At that very moment, when God took Adam and breathed into him the breath of life, he stamped on your heart the image of God. Is that just true for Adam? No, it's not. It's true for all of us. John chapter 1, verse 3 through 9 tell us this. It starts out by this. this it says, all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And it says, in him, in the creator, in Jesus, was life. And what was the life? The life was the light of man. That was that internal compass 
The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came to bear witness of that light so that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but came to bear witness of that light. That was the true light. Listen to this verse, 1-9. That was the true light that lights every man coming into the world. He breathed into us the breath of life and left the stamp of God in our hearts. What else has God done? God has determined our boundaries. He has determined our circumstances. He has determined world history. I don't have time to expand on that this morning, but God has done that so that we would seek the Lord. The fourth thing that we can draw from creation. First one, the first inference we can draw from is it's not we're not going to find God through man-made religion the second one we don't please God through our works the third one is that God has put an internal compass on everybody but the fourth thing that we get from creation is the nearness and the accessibility of God I'm so thankful for that God is so close he is in your next breath. He can be in your next thought. And you don't have to come to a rabbi. You don't have to come to a priest. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to do a ritual. He is here at this moment. For in Him we live and move and have our very being. In John, in Romans chapter 10, Paul put it like this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 11. He says, for this is the commandment which I command thee this day. It is not hard from thee, far from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who's going to go up to heaven? It's not up in, in the sea saying, who's going to go down after it? Neither is it beyond the sea who's going to say, who will go? And bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is nigh you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. You see, the ancient Hebrews knew of the nearness of God. Not only did the ancient Hebrews know it, the ancient Greeks knew it. Aristotle said that God is the unmoved mover of the universe. Erodus the poet said, in God we move and live and have our being and we're his offspring. The Greeks knew it. And unwittingly, today's atheists know the exact same thing. I listened to a debate by Richard Dawkins. If you're not familiar with him, he's probably the foremost world's atheist. He's written the book called The God Delusion. And in this debate, he glibly remarks to the Christian, I don't need some ancient religious book to tell me what's right and wrong. Oh, really, Richard? Like he somehow undoes the Christian argument that we have a Bible. Unwittingly, he has confessed the truth of the Bible. Yes, Dawkins, you don't need a religious book to tell you what's right and wrong. Why? Because God has put it in your heart. This is what it says in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. When the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things that are contained in the law, these having the law, or a law unto themselves, which show the work of God written in their hearts. Yes, you don't need some religious book because God's already placed it here. My last point this morning is that our God, our Creator God that we can share with our friends, is that He is so long-suffering, but He still appoints 
a day of judgment. And we get this from the last part of the passage. And this is a difficult passage to understand, but I'm going to try to explain it the best that I can, the best way I know it. Verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Now what does that mean? The old King James says that God winked at. It's not exactly the best translation. The Greek word literally means to look beyond it, to look over it or to look in the future, to suspend what he sees in the immediate judgment of those people. That's what it means that God overlooked it or God winked at it. He's looking forward and he's postponing and he's waiting on judgment. God has overlooked it. God, in His grace, is allowing men their free will choices and to take you where they may lead you. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 through 26, tells of this. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but their foolish hearts were darkened, and God allowed them to follow the dictates of their heart. This is what Paul said back in the city of Lystra. When they began to sacrifice to him, he said, God has not left himself without witness. And he has looked over your ignorances in bygone days. But nevertheless, he is witnessing and telling you that there is a true God by giving you rain, by filling your hearts with fruit, and giving your life gladness. God is still speaking and God is still drawing. So in the sense that God is overlooking, God is allowing people to walk after their own way. Nevertheless, God is not leaving himself without a witness. God no longer was going to overlook the Athens' ignorance. They had knowledge of the one creator through Epimenides. They had knowledge of a conscience through Arotus, the poet. And they had a conscience in their own heart. God could have brought immediate judgment. But God, even to this very day, is overlooking man's ignorance. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. God is doing it, I believe, because of Genesis 9.21. God looked on the earth and God made a covenant with man. He says, I'm going to overlook man's willful disobedience and that their heart is continually evil, and I am not going to bring global devastation ever again until Jesus Christ comes back. That's what I believe Paul is saying here, that God's not just erasing sin, forgetting about sin. He's waiting the impending doom of final judgment. But in the meantime, when you know about Jesus, it calls for immediate response. God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. Let me be clear on this. God's atonement through Jesus Christ is unlimited. The Bible is so clear on this. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2.2. 2. Let me just pause for a moment. My brain's kind of rattled here. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of truth. For there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. 
Hebrews 2.9 says, We see Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He's crowned with glory and honor. Why? So that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every individual, every man. 1 John 2.2 2. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for my sin and your sin, and not only ours, but also for the sins of who? The entire world. John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Because you know what? We're condemned already without Christ. So we need to be direct, and we need to call people to Jesus. With greater knowledge, with greater accountability. Jesus said this, If I had not spoken to them, they had not sinned. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Once we tell people about Jesus, we must push them toward a, a decision to trust and follow Him. Jesus went on to say, If I had not done among them the works that no man had done, they had not sinned. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my Father. The command is universal. What are some things that we can glean from this passage that we can take home today? One, I, if I want to seek to, to save people or see... See, I can't save anybody. If I want God to use me to reach people, I must be relational. I may, must take time to invest in their lives, and I must take careful observation of the things that are important to them. Secondly, I need to pray for wisdom that God will show me how to take that interest and turn it into an evangelistic opportunity. We've got to know our Scripture John Wesley said this, any mature Christian should be able to take any passage of Scripture in the Bible and go from there and lead someone to Jesus. We need to talk to people about the wonder of creation. Have you ever thought about creation? I mean, really thought about it? It will just boggle your mind. This week I was thinking about the earth in its orbit around the sun. Job says that we hang in space on nothing. How does that happen? Now, Soren can tell us the physics behind it. Two things, inertia and gravity. I understand inertia and I understand the gravity. Inertia, you put water in a bucket, you do this as a kid, right? And you take the bucket and you swing it around and around. The water, that's inertia. It's keeping that water into the bucket. The earth is spinning around, and that's the inertia. But what's the bucket? The sun's gravity. And those two things have to be in perfect balance. I looked it up in the Britannica Encyclopedia this as I was studying. And this is what it said. We are the luckiest planet everywhere because we stay in our orbit in the universe. Thank goodness for the orbit. I thought of Romans 25, 1.25. Thank goodness for the orbit. No, thank God that He's so wise and all-powerful. They worship the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we need to just point people to the wonders of creation. We need to use man's innate knowledge of what true spirituality is. People intuitively know that spirituality is not about a religion. It's not about rituals. People intuitively know that when you begin to talk to them. 
And one of the things that push people away is this thought of organized religion. Well, we're not unorganized here, but we're not about rituals either. We're about a living relationship with a God who breathed into us the breath of life and that we can know Him intimately through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what people need to know. We need to also point them that there's only one sacrifice and God has got an objective standard by which He's going to judge us. And He's given verification. The greatest event in antiquity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and there's more evidence for it than any other historical event. Point people to Jesus and the resurrection. Let's close with prayer. Father, Paul, in the wisdom that you gave him, walked through all the implications of being one divine creator. Lord, those are all tools that we can use as evangelists. But God, it's got to start in our hearts. We must be moved, we must be broken, and we must be stirred when we see lost people around us. Pray, I, I, I pray for God, us as a body of Christians, Lord, that God, that we would take serious the call to take this message to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts is modeling it for us everywhere. And we have received, received that same Holy Spirit that gives us power to be your witness. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it alone is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.